Hello and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. My name is John McGowan, I'm a clinical psychologist working in the centre and I'm joined by uh, our usual panel um, of Anne Cook. Hello. Rachel Terry. Hello. And making your second appearance, our service user and care coordinator, Laura Lee. Welcome back, Laura. Hello. Right. Today, as with last time, we're going to try and do something a little different from our normal panel discussion of an issue. We've put out a call for questions to us on Twitter, Facebook and anywhere else we can think of uh, where our listeners uh, might be. So as a Christmas special, we're going to try and get through as many of your questions as we can. So we've had quite uh, a few and it has been a bit of a job uh, picking these for what is going to be a fairly quick fire quick fire round I think. So I'm just going to start off with one that we received which uh, I do think we we do want to address but possibly not in this setup which is um, something called Isis Kovacs on Twitter. Do you know Isis Kovacs? Yeah. Uh, Anne? Uh, um, I've never never met her. She's very active. I've never met her in real life now. Um, in real as we're saying Twitter isn't real life. Yeah. <laughs> Social media isn't real life, the official word for man. Now, this question uh, pertained to the effects of borderline uh, personality label and was talking about the importance of having um, the voices of people who've, who've been given that label and ha- are campaigning about it and its potential adverse uh, effects. Now, this seemed, when we were discussing this before, this seemed such a big question, really, that I think it ties in with something we've been planning for a while which is really to do a whole podcast episode on this and have a range of interviews with people with different perspectives and in different parts of the system on this, including people who have been uh, given this label and various other people who we think we could access for some interview material. So we're not going to get into, I think, in this podcast, ISIS, uh, but we... It is really on our radar. I think there'll be a fair amount of work in this, but we're pretty keen to put something uh, together around this as it's an area that quite a few of us have a fairly strong interest in, but we haven't done so yet. So putting that one just to one side for the moment, I think is being maybe a too great a scope. Uh, I'm going to hand over to you, Laura, for the next question from Aaron Roberts, friend of the podcast, the formal alum of here. Okay, so the question is... The organising value around how we help people in distress often seems to be privilege the evidence base. How might things be different if we had different organising values and what might they be? What do we think? What might they be? Well, the first thing that came into my head listening to this question was um, how do we tell the difference, really? Because I think that what we call the evidence base says a lot about our values So, for example, um, in a randomised controlled trial where people are seeing if something is helpful, you need to have some way of measuring whether the thing is helpful. And so people fill in a checklist about, you know, whether they don't hear voices anymore, for example. So if you think about it, there's values behind every item on those checklists and every decision we uh, make about how we measure things and therefore what counts as evidence. So... Uh, I suppose what I would welcome is being a bit more upfront about that and having maybe having a conversation about whose values inform those decisions and what we call about ev- call evidence. My feeling is that values are really important in terms of how services are delivered and how care is offered. But I take my mind back to the history of the mental health services and think about how women were devalued and treated in certain ways because of that. People from the LGBT community uh, were treated in ways that would not be consistent with values that we have today. 
values are culture driven so whose values will we be uh, taking into account if we were more value-laden and driven. I mean, I also think we can be a bit dismissive about the evidence-based to go back to it. I think, and I think sometimes clinical psychologists in particular have been criticised for sort of being arrogant and dismissive of the evidence-based. And I do think that we should be paying attention to what the research says is helpful or not when we're working with people. But having said that, I think we do, all, do also need to recognise that often the evidence that there is is based on very, very narrow or specific populations, which, you know, in reality with people that we're working with who are complex and come with a range of presenting problems it's very difficult to pull out from the to apply the evidence necessarily because it's not always as neat and tidy as that in everyday life so I think it is tricky. I would prefer to be treated by somebody who knows the evidence base Mm. but as you say evidence is very limited research takes years and years to undertake and is always with a small population, Mm. generally with a small population. But for me, there's also something about, and this is perhaps a value, that recovery and living well, or as well as you can uh, in the presence of mental health difficulties, has to be something that it comes from the person. And so there's something about Mm. the recovery approach, which um, some service users have developed in the past, And that um, seems to need to go hand in hand with the evidence. Um, What drives clinical psychologists helping then if it's not the evidence base? Well, there's different levels of evidence as well, isn't there? Because there's evidence-based practice, which I guess is looking at what research studies say is helpful or not. But there's also practice-based evidence. And people obviously draw on their previous experiences in an area. If you've worked in an area for a long time, you build up knowledge and expertise and evidence, if that's what you want to call it, about what what has been helpful, what hasn't been helpful. So there are different types of evidence that we might want to draw on as well. I wonder about that though, I'm just going back to what you said Laura, I wonder if we sometimes are a bit dismissive of evidence in mental health services. I mean surely I think we need to be really humble in front of evidence at times because we may have all sorts of ideas and fantasies about what's um, what's going to work. I mean I certainly remember working in inpatient um, acute mental health settings for a number of years and I, I was slightly surprised by the number of my colleagues who really felt that they were achieving something very substantial in, you know, in a couple of sessions with people and I, I did wonder if we were just kidding ourselves on that we weren't that we were actually and the evidence would suggest that you know actually you may have the odd occasional success there but actually what are you achieving but then again of course it comes back to your point Anne about well, what are the the outcomes that you're privileging and where are those you know where are those coming from I mean just have a quick shell for our next podcast I gave a talk here yesterday about suicide prevention And one of the things I was kind of worried about was when you really, really look at suicide prevention, that can be the only metric that you look at Mm. and you don't end up, the only measure that you look at, and then you don't end up looking at lots of other things about the quality of the experience people have in services and if that might be in some way harmed by, you know, just, you know, risk, you know, just a a huge emphasis on kind of risk control. It's a complicated point and I can't really get, you know, listen to the next, listen to the next podcast, what can Mm. I say? But in some sense, you know, just taking one metric and thinking well actually you know nothing else really really matters it worries me slightly what you're saying about what was it practice-based evidence so what the what you've learned through experiences as therapists and 
I am concerned that potentially this evidence and knowledge is drawn from a certain group of people within society, so perhaps those who are better educated, those who are more familiar with the idea of talking and discussing, who can access um, ideas perhaps associated with uh, cognitive behaviour therapy, for example. And I'm wondering about what evidence would emerge if we were looking at a different group of people in society, both in terms of clinicians' experiences, but also maybe our research studies are actually drawing on participants from a certain sector of society. Mm-hmm. And for me, there is something about a group of people who are disenfranchised, who are, uh, haven't got access to things that enable them to make their way in life, who are on the fringes of the mental health services and maybe the people who are coming back into services over and over again because they don't have resources to move on into a more recovered space. And this is making me think about, um, you know, research needs funding and so most research happens where the most funding is. Um, So, you know, often large-scale, for example, medication trials get a lot of funding. There's a lot of funding at the moment into sort of neuroimaging, brain scanning kind of studies, and that's getting a lot of funding. So, you know, a lot of the research evidence is is where the money is, and so Mm -hmm. it depends what questions we're asking, what kind of knowledge is generated. There are big gaps, as you were saying, Laura. Can can anyone frame this in terms of values? I mean, Aaron's question was about values. Um, How would we see it in those terms? Well, I was thinking about what if we were kind of starting from scratch and trying to design a values-based mental health service, what would we do? And I guess what we would do is take get the people who have an interest in the service, particularly the people that the service is for, Mm. and ask them what they value, what they want to get out of the service. And I worry sometimes that we don't do that Mm. um, because services exist. They have been as they are for ages. We might tweak tweak them at at the edges, but really they're informed kind of over history by, I suppose, what you could call patriarchal values, sort of similar to what you're talking Mm. about, um, Laura. And nobody's ever actually started by taking a load of people who've used or might use mental health services and saying, you know, what are your values? What do you want in life? What do you want from a mental health service? But also clinicians, you know, Mm. we may, we all probably have our own ideas about what we value, but different mental health professionals making up a mental health service, it would be useful to be having those discussions as a staff team as well, because we probably do, our work is influenced by our own values, but how much is it influenced by our colleagues, what we want as a service as a whole from the people we're working with as well? Um, For me, there's something really important about recognising that Um, or enabling people to have and keep their own responsibility for developing their own life goals and this I think is is something that is uh, troublesome in this country in relation to the whole NHS because I think we as a population tend to hand over our problems to the medical profession and it has all sorts of consequences Mm. that are difficult so for me that is a Uh, a fundamental value that needs somehow to be incorporated into the work of mental health services and actually it's also an uncomfortable value because I think most of us at some points in our life if not quite a lot of our lives want to go I do wish I could hand over responsibility for this and somebody will look after me and take charge of what's happening to me so actually it's a really uncomfortable thing for people to grapple with Mm, but nevertheless it's something that has arisen from the recovery movement in in, um, opposition to 
this patriarchal um, paternalistic view of you know I know what's good for you you need to do this and of course um, it becomes a merry-go-round of different drugs and different experiences that can be quite traumatizing for some people well, again, this is something I was thinking about yesterday. It's really on my mind just how easy I think it is to assume what constitutes help for people. We assume that, you know, being medication compliant equals help or, you know, preventing self-harm equals help or getting somebody back to work equals help and in some sense they might or might not but mm. if we're operating on you know from the first principle of well, what what does help actually mean for, for this person at this at this moment what for, would be genuinely helpful i know it sounds simple but i, I think from the with certainly certain parts of the service user movement um, and certain clinicians there is something very clearly in, in relation to values that's emerged more recently which is around education the people who have mental health difficulties need knowledge about their mental health conditions so that they can make choices and of course there's a recovery college movement which has been promoted by both clinicians and service users and some carers as well which tries to incorporate that value that education is actually absolutely essential to making the best of what can be very problematic. I suppose many, many people might have very different ideas on what kind of education and resource needs to go into health. and But that, I guess, it maybe is, it opens us up into a whole other topic. And I think, but maybe on that note, we should move on to the next question that we have, which I'm going to pass over to you, Anne, for this one. Um, and then I'm going to add a chaser, which is actually from you. OK, this is a question that's been sent in uh, via Twitter by the organisation Psychologists for Social Change. Uh, they start by saying it's a potentially unfair question for a complex societal problem, but they ask it anyway. And it is, what do the discussants think are the top three things that busy mental health professionals can do to address the social determinants of human suffering in their everyday work? Well, before jumping on to the question that you also submitted to your own panel, I don't know shall we we have a think about that? Because I I really think that's a really interesting question. Okay, I have one very short answer to this, and that is stop ignoring it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, funny enough, that was top of my list as well when I was thinking about this just now on the train. Acknowledge it, I basically said. Yes, I think a lot of the time... Well, I suppose it's partly because of the assumptions that mental health services appear to be kind of set up on that, you know, people come to us because there's something wrong inside their heads, essentially. Either something's gone wrong with their brain or something's gone wrong with the way that they think. And, you know, we're supposed to kind of... Professionals are supposed to kind of fix that. And it's all kind of set up to um, focus our attention only on that and not on the horrific things that people who come to see us have often gone through and are still experiencing. Well, I was going to say, you know, one of the strengths, I think, of our profession and what we bring to multidisciplinary groups is trying to think about the whole person formulating from the biopsychosocial. Um, And so I think one of the things that we psychologists as busy mental health professionals can do is to try and bring in broad formulations when we're thinking about the people we're working with and what might be helpful. This week, loneliness has been a massive thing in the news, hasn't it? And Mm. the the serious um, difficulties that are associated with loneliness and the serious physical health problems it causes, mental health problems it causes. So, for example, you know, helping somebody to plug into community groups, um, social activities 
you know, just thinking more broadly rather than what specific therapy might be helpful or what specific medication might be helpful. There's lots of um, work that might be helpful, I think. So one of our roles, small thing, can be around doing things like that. Helping yeah. people get the right benefits. I was going to say um, that, I don't think that is a small thing. Yeah. Um, are we just dismissing psychotherapies here, though? Are we just dismissing it? Surely sometimes problems are in people's heads, aren't they? Absolutely, but I... Th- uh, well, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I don't Aren't think they? they're. I don't think they're just in people's heads. No, they're I said, in, but sometimes they are. I, no, I, I. My perspective is they are problems are in our social lives. If we have problems in our heads, they play out in our social lives. If we have problems in our social lives, they play out in our heads. I don't think, for me. Mm-hmm. I can't distinguish uh, and I wouldn't prioritise our thinking as the most important thing. There's one of our colleagues here um, from our service user um, uh, advisory group famously said something along the lines of therapy is no good if you can't afford to eat. And some people are in that position and it is so easy to focus on the therapy because actually it can be done. But the problem of finding ways in which people can get a reasonable standard of living, perhaps when their educational levels are low or they're in a part of the country where unemployment is high, are really complex. So they're easily ignored. I mean, I'm being a bit of a devil's advocate here, Laura. I mean, basically, I agree with you. I mean, I do come back to my own training and I certainly I did a lot of work in what would be broadly classed as adult mental health in my training and looking back on it over 50% of the people that I saw were single parents living on benefits you know mm-hmm. during that training period and I remember feeling terribly sort of powerless within those I was very interested in really being a therapist at that point and I remember feeling quite powerless within those contexts that just that you know the kind of just the, the regularity of the struggle I suppose as much you know the, just the grafting out and you know, semi-poverty every day, day in, day out, carrying the burdens of parenthood under that. And obviously, what you say is completely correct, but I suppose a kind of contrasting experience is is putting it all into, um, you know, inequality or poverty or deprivation or loneliness. I remember when I worked in wards for, sometime I had the luxury of an audio typist, which was fantastic in terms of, you know, the work was quite fast turnover. And the the woman who did the audio typing for me, she's very, very kind. I remember once her saying to me, um, all these people that you're seeing, I write all these reports on the, on these people. And it just seems to me that most of them just need a friend. And I was absolutely paralysed by that question. Because on one level, she was kind of right. But on another level, that was, you know, it, was, she, it just wasn't. It wasn't really capturing it because for so many of those people, the difficulty was, well, how could I help them in terms of how they met the world and related to people to, you know, actually be able to hold things like friendship, you know, in their lives was actually a huge problem, really. So in so in some sense, I, I suppose I'm just trying to say that, yes, sometimes, you know, trying to be with somebody and think about how they're approaching meeting the world does feel important but of course just saying it's all that is you know it's kind of a bit obscene actually really isn't it i i don't uh as somebody who's experienced really significant mental health problems i don't uh underestimate just how problematic it is to have things going on in your head and perhaps in your heart too that are so complicated you can't begin to address them on your own and so you do need somebody with skill and knowledge and the right values basis base to be able to help you make sense of that. 
Absolutely. And I suppose what I would add is another thing we can do is alongside that, because that's the bread and butter of our work as psychologists, if you like, um, we can campaign for and get involved in social action around changing the social conditions that bring people, you know, often make mean that people end up in situations where they need need a psychologist. So, for example, I take my hat off to the organisation that posed this question, Psychologists for Social Change. I mean, in some ways, this sort of slightly brings me on to the next question, which is um, from somebody called Anne Cook. Who's on, she? On Twitter, <laughs> sounds like a troublemaker, I've oh, yeah. got to say. And it, it, it sort of pertains to this in the sense it's what system you work within. Um, you know, to to address the stress, and you say your specific question is: Should clinical psychologists? You're posing it to clinical psychologists, but I think it, it may equally apply to many other people who work in in mental health. Should clinical psychologists who think aspects of the current mental health system are damaging stay and work for change when within, or leave and help support alternatives, e.g., survivor-run services? So, in some sense, this thing that we're talking about. Is that something that we we and other people can, you know, work within a system? Does that allow us to address some of the things that we're talking about, or do do you have to be outside that? Do you have to be working in a different way? Do you want to mm. go and get elected as a I don't know an MP or something? You know, so what? So can can we work within that system meaningfully and do good? I suppose. Yeah, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. I mean, the reason I posed this question on Twitter was that it's something I've been struggling with myself for years because I've spent many years working in kind of mainstream mental health services, acute psychiatric ward, community mental health teams, and I feel very split about uh, whether I did much good, really, to be honest. Part of me thinks I did, and a lot of, pe- a lot of pe- my colleagues have said to me, but the system is what we have, it's where people end up when they're in crisis... they need something good they need a psychologically informed service so you know don't underestimate the good that psychologists do within services for all their faults but the other side of that is you know I witnessed services based on a very very simplistic reductionist medical model doing things that I thought frankly were wrong a lot of the time um, and causing great suffering to people and then you think or people you know want one point of view is by staying there you're just propping it up and basically you're promulgating the existence of something that's overall damaging so and there are alternatives and why are you putting your energy into that when for example you could be starting a crisis house or helping a group of survivors to start a crisis house that would be an alternative and wouldn't have some of those problems and i do think well, it's why a real would you have some of those problems surely services nhs services are run by people who have experience of mental health problems and direct personal experience of mental health problems and a range of things why would it be different to you know survivor run services because i often hear this touted as a as an answer in various circumstances i'm just curious as to why there's a well there's a lot of i'm aware i'm talking a lot but there's a lot of reasons and i think one of them is to do with power to do with who has power over who and related to that whose story about what's going on has power in the situation and i I suppose for me it goes back a lot to uh, what i was saying earlier about the ideas, the guiding ideas behind the services. And, you know, the guiding idea behind our mental health services basically is for all the frills and and bells around the edges, 
things go wrong with people's brains and we're here to fix them, uh, perhaps by psychology, but mainly chemically. Um, and that's the kind of guiding idea behind, for example, the Mental Health Act, which, you know, we can do that by force if necessary. And personally, I think that's a very unhelpful, simplistic, reductionist way of seeing things and idea to base services on. And um, when I see su survivor-run services, they're not based on that idea. They're based on a completely different set of ideas. don't know. I mean, I definitely think that there's room for both and psychologists should be doing both. Personally, when I was working in forensic mental health services, I found that, you know, some of the things that went on I didn't agree with, but I also found that, you know, I was able to have influence, help the team to think differently yeah. sometimes. So I think that was really important. I do think we as a profession, I'm glad that there is a slightly more increasing emphasis on leadership because I think the more that clinical psychologists can take on more senior roles within NHS services, things that might help to shift things or outside of NHS services. So I think, you know, one thing we need to be doing is stepping up a bit, putting ourselves forward in places where decisions get made. Uh, we've talked about trying to have more influence um, through the Association of Clinical Psychologists, potentially lobbying more, getting involved in politics, potentially. Um, I think we do need to sort of take on positions of responsibility and influence more than we potentially have done. Mm. Absolutely, and I think there's something about the NHS that is our bottom line. Changing the NHS is a big process but if you look back over the last 40 years 50 years there has been a significant change in the way that people think about mental health uh, and there have been changes in practice change in society always takes a long time I guess what I worry about uh, about people opting out of the system who have psychological knowledges well that will leave the system even more beleaguered mm. and it will still, in this country anyway, be the place where people end up when everything else falls apart. Exactly. And so the, it's beholden on all of us to ensure that those places are as best as they can be. But I think, for me, there is something about this idea of cure um, and medication and what it can do and achieve that, you know, is at the heart of this discussion and what what is possible for people and how people will interact with that and how psychologists interact with that. What do you mean? Well, I think it comes back to uh, there is this perspective of doctors can uh, cure you. Mm. That's the perspective you go into as a mental health service user initially. Oh, I'll get some medication, that'll make me better. Mm. It's only two years down the line when you've gone a bit up and down and you think, well, I've had better phases, but actually this medication isn't making me better. What else do I need to do? Mm. So there is something about a much broader picture of what good mental health looks like and enabling mm. service users and families to see the whole process of developing a, a better way of living with mental health difficulties in that broad way, because I think we all come to the services going, cure me. Mm. I mean, I wonder about this in the context of resources, because sometimes, I mean, actually I'm aware that some people are perhaps reluctant in, to be in NHS mental health, uh, partly as a result of the way that certain things have changed over the last 40 years. I think a lot of things have got better, but we are, I would argue, in a moment where, you know, we're very keen on seeing difficulties through the lens of mental health. Mm. Um, you know more more so than ever at any point in our history as a humanity. I, I, actually, I, I suppose 
I mean, the, the thing I say, the thing that's on my mind at the moment a lot is is risk. And uh, you know, when I hear calls for um, you know more money for mental health, you know, there's you know the suicide rates are at X level, and you know we need more money for Beth, you know, for you know going into mental health. I always feel terribly ambivalent about it because it's really about what the money is going to be spent on, and I don't particularly want to see a lot of money spent on you know, very, very socially controlling systems that, you know, deny, you know, deny people liberty and choice and meaningful choice kind of in treatment, which I think sometimes a very, very, you know, when you're only seeing through the things through the lens of, you know, for example, prevention of suicide or self-harm and not really looking at other, you know, indicators of quality. Um, you know, I get very kind of twitchy about that and I can see why people might struggle uh, though after somebody who really felt like you've fought a lot of battles around trying to expand and you know slightly loosen the the, the grip of I don't think that's necessarily a medical thing I think it's a, a kind of societal desire mm -hmm. for you know for control that was kind of been winning out at that point and I you know I feel reluctant to work in systems where you're funneling more money into them uh, as you know controlling systems that are all about preventing people doing things mm. or circumscribing choice or liberty mm. really yes. so I can see why people find it painful really though obviously I would say that it would be a lot more painful if people who don't have different you know a range of visions don't go into work in statutory services mm -hmm. Shall we? Shall we take the next? Shall we take the next question over to you, Rachel? We're moving to a slightly more festive angle. Actually, it's a terribly serious discussion. That yeah, we had. haven't been very festive. <laughs> we haven't been so very festive. So. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there's two questions um, which for me go together. So the first question was put by Stephen Wright, who is a recent graduate, if we want to call it that, from the Salomon's training program. He said, is the emphasis on consumerism at Christmas and subsequent money problems in January causing families too much unnecessary distress, or is it just me? And then Trish, Trish Jocelyn, one of our colleagues here at Salomon's, has said, what do the panel think about the idea of getting rid of Christmas on mental health grounds? No, never steps away from being blunt. <laughs> Trish, does she? Absolute rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> No, we should not get rid of a major festival that is still enjoyed by many people across the country. And it's a sacred festival for many people. Um, but yes, uh, most of us probably spend too much money. Yes, I'm, I'm already looking forward to my bread and water diet this January, really, you know, as I'm you know, covered with bear. Well, I think it is true, though. You know, so somebody said on Twitter the other day, oh, can't we just skip Christmas and can't it be January already? And I must admit... Uh, I did like that tweet because <laughs> part of me, part of me thinks that. But I, I, I suppose maybe what lies behind the second question anyway is how hard the so-called festive season mm. is for people who aren't feeling festive, which includes a lot of uh, those of us with mental health problems. I think, and I think it's partly this idea that you quote ought to be having fun. Yes. Um, and it's really not helped by things like Facebook, where people just post all pictures that make it look as if they're having fun all the time. Anyway, but particularly uh, during uh, family holidays, and of course, there's uh, I suppose there's that angle as well, isn't there? That traditionally families yeah. come together. I was remembering which Monday is it that's Divorce Monday yeah. in January yeah. because of all the rows people yeah. are going to have over Christmas. Yeah. I think it's it's a difficult one for me. I think the thing that I really find difficult about Christmas is the, the kind of obligatoriness of the participation, really. It feels like you can't really get out of it. And, you know, there's aspects of it that I do really enjoy. And there's aspects of it that I find kind of excruciating, really. Like, 
sending Christmas cards. I haven't sent them for the last few years, and I, you know, whatever this says about my psyche, I, you know, I thought I'd feel really guilty about stopping sending them, for example. But in actual fact, I feel nothing but relief <laughs> every year that I don't that I've decided not to send them mm-hmm. anymore. This isn't necessarily you know well received by my partner, but it's, um, <laughs> well, I still like counting how many Christmas. Christmas cards I've received but I just find it very hard to send any which doesn't really work and then I go to my dad's and I look at the number on his walls and I'm going how come so yeah there are he's not on social media so he's not not being transferred over to that it's a generational thing he's still got the paper paper piled up um yeah i i agree it is a very difficult time of year for so many people but i wonder would that be any different if we had a different type of festival all cultures have festivals and maybe all cultures experience you know that for some people these are difficult times because the anniversaries and Mm. people remember anniversaries if you've lost someone so i don't think we should get rid of all our Festivals. I think it's the, the paradox of these festivals and celebrations because Christmas, weddings, you know, these things where you get together with other people or get together. It's an object relational nightmare. <laughs> what is an object relational nightmare? Well, you know, it plays to all of the fundamental, you know, difficulties of our deepest relationship templates and difficulties and disappointments and joys with other people who are close to us and you know we come the people that we're closest to you know the feelings are so strong the people that we sometimes have both the greatest joy with and the greatest difficulties with really and I say you see that at weddings you see that at you know christenings you see that you see it at Christmas yes um, and you know that these things can be very challenging really Yes, um, I guess it's an opportunity to be reminded that being human is difficult. Yep, absolutely. And so we stuff ourselves with, you know, we stuff ourselves <laughs> yes. with seasonal fare get drunk. and get drunk yeah. to and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anaesthetise that, really. Um, but, I mean, in the initial question alluded to the sort of financial pressures of Christmas as well, and we haven't mm. really talked about that, but, you know, there is very much a sort of consumerism around Christmas more and more, isn't there? And, and that, you know, people do get into a lot of financial debt at Christmas, and I think that that is a big stress and worry for a lot of families around Christmas as well, which may be different to some other festivals, Laura, potentially. I I think that's true. And it is interesting because I was just thinking it's sort of about unplugging yourself from this idea of Christmas to making Christmas what's right for you. Mm. Um, difficult though and because it's it feels, really difficult yeah. because you know it's on the radio it's on the news it's on it's in social Facebook. media mm. it's in the schools I'm not sure mm. what's going on in the schools uh, anymore because my children are older but um, it, it is that taking what's what's valuable and good from it and making mm. that helpful and celebrating that. I mean, that does tie in with a research study that, that I quickly read prior to this podcast, which was from 2002, so quite a while ago now, an American study by Cassa and Sheldon. And they said that for those who um, prioritise kind of religious aspects of Christmas or spending time with family aspects of Christmas, their levels of stress and well-being tend to be higher. Those who sort of focus on the kind of gift buying the money worries around Christmas they, those people tend to report higher levels of stress and lower levels of well-being around Christmas so mm. you know, so it's the consumerism study. that makes it more stressful yes. or the pressure of maybe, maybe we need a kind of you know small present movement I mean, it would te- go down terribly with the with any government of the day who obviously want us to spend a bit at Christmas but you know movement for all presents to be you know 
either, you know, uh, something given in kind or under fiver or something yes. like that, you know. Really I quite like that, actually, yeah, I have I to say. It's like, you yeah. know, I quite like that notion that we do something for each other instead of a present or that we, you know, we have the challenge of a present that's actually a very small... And we could, we could maybe then give the excess money to the people to whom I take off my hat who put themselves out mm. at Christmas for the people who uh, would otherwise be on their own. Mm. So I've read mm. on Twitter about a pub... Well, I saw a tweet by a pub that just said, on Christmas Day, if you're on your own, come to us, we'll give you a Christmas dinner free. Yeah. I just thought that was so lovely. Yeah. Um, but there's hundreds of things going on like that. So, yeah, maybe we could support those instead of buying the ridiculous presents. Mm. Just then, this, now it's, this, is, this item, of course, has reminded me that I haven't got um, the thing that I'm supposed to buy for our office, Secret Santa. So I can <laughs> go and feel some stress about that. <laughs> maybe I should be grateful that I have been prompted and reminded. <laughs> OK, shall we... Uh, just, we've got a last couple of, que- couple of questions, both of which pertain to Christmas. Uh, as you Rachel, the first one's from Angela Gilchrist, friend of the podcast, friend yes. of the centre. Um, I'll pass over to you, Rachel, but we've got two that, again, are a bit connected, yes. I think. Yes, so Angela's question was, I'd like you to discuss whether or not it's psychologically wise to encourage children to believe in fantasies like Santa Claus. And um, the second question from Paula Redmond, who's also an ex-Salomon's trainee, I think is, is the elf on the shelf innocent Christmas fun or a sinister form of social control? She says she's, she's very confused about which it might be. Well, before we um, get into the the public revelation from Angela, fantasies like Santa Claus, which I thought was bold, to say the least, <laughs> to say that in a public forum. Yeah, we should have a warning with this podcast. Do not listen to this if you want. Yeah, but you, I think you may need to explain to us about the elf on the shelf, Rachel, as you were the only one who knew exactly what that was. Okay, my understanding of the elf on the shelf, I have an elf that comes to my house now, who's an elf on the shelf. An elf on the shelf is an elf that comes on the 1st of December, sent from Santa Claus, goes back to Santa um, every night to report back um, on how the children in your house are doing. So some families may choose that the elf goes and tells Santa whether the children have been good or bad, and that might factor into the presents they might get. So that's one thing that the elf on the shelf does. So like Santa, another marvellous piece of magic to you know really spice up the festive season or a way to completely screw your kids yeah. up entirely so how do we feel about this as a parents uh, abound in this podcast actually well, so, I, I, I um, actually thought I'd get some service user involvement in answering this question so I have a 12 year old so I uh, sat him down yesterday and I went in so I asked him this question and he said I don't know really so uh, I went into all the psychological reasons you know about it being bad to model deception and all this kind of stuff on pros and cons of um, being truthful or otherwise about Father Christmas. And I took about half an hour going through it, and in the end I said, OK then, so what do you think? And he said, doesn't matter. <laughs> so how is it? But he is 12, not 5. True. I think it might have mattered when he was 5. Yes. Yeah. Again, I did read a study about this, and again, it's quite an old one, 1994, and this study interviewed children who no longer believed in Santa Claus and their parents and it was about how they'd come to that process of discovery and what impact it had had on them and that study said that most of the children said that they came to the realisation that Santa wasn't real at about age seven and that they found that a relatively they found felt fine about discovering Mm -hmm. that Santa wasn't real the parents reported feeling very invested in their children believing in Father (laughs) Christmas generally and feeling quite sad when they no longer 
believed. But in terms of a fear that it might somehow be damaging our children to sort of lie to them and tell them that Santa exists, in this one study that certainly didn't seem to be the case. Has anyone had the conversation with their kids about Santa? Because we've, I think, successfully managed to avoid that. Um, well, that's what you know, I was... Just the osmotic process, well, let them my, find out. You my know. my uh, children knew that Santa lived in Imagination Land and I left them to work out what Imagination Land was. Ah, um, but of course they I now... I don't know if that's clever or uh, oh, <laughs> Well, it, it seemed to be a good compromise at the time. I'm not so sure about this elf on the shelf, though. Sounds very dodgy, reporting back every night mm. to Santa. Mm. Well, if it's effective, God, you know... <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think it may depend a bit how children find out that Santa doesn't exist. If they find out in some kind of shaming way, if they're made to feel mm. stupid or naive or something for believing, then that's potentially harmful. But if they come to the realisation themselves and in some way feel empowered or have a positive experience of finding out, then I think that's okay. I think it also may depend a bit on the context. If they constantly feel slightly misled or uninformed by the adults in their life, then this might just be another sign of yes. you know, incidents of that, which might not be helpful. But if, in general, they have trusting relationships with their family and generally don't see their, the adults in their life as lying to them, then I think it's OK in this one instance. I also think it... Sorry, I was just going to say, I also think it's an interesting example of how we can believe two contradictory things at the same time because with my, my interestingly, my children are now 15 and 12 and it's only this year that they've actually said to us out straight we know santa doesn't exist they've always sort of played along yeah. and i kind of think I'm fearing that, that the stream of presents would disappear uh, probably now. yeah yes, but i kind uh, of think that there was a time in the i don't know how, how old six or something where they sort of knew but they sort of didn't want to know so they carried on believing as well and i think that's really relevant to a whole load of you know psychological problems about which is to do with belief because you know as human beings we can believe contradictory mm. things at the same time yeah. well this is i mean this is the thing that i was thinking about the sort of psychological aspect that I was thinking about a few years ago. Um, I wrote a piece about the children's author, Shirley Hughes, who my kids had been very into when they were younger, and I think I was having a bit of a moment that they were growing up and sort of leaving this behind. And I was trying to sort of understand in myself a bit what appealed to me so much about Shirley Hughes, who many of you may be familiar with. I mean, she's obviously best known as an illustrator, but she wrote these really amazing stories about the world of really very young children and there's one where Alfie who's Shirley Hughes' main protagonist finds a stone on a beach and he sort of pretends that the stone has a personality and you know he kind of really believes it in the way that he said there's a kind of dual thing and Hannah Siegel the psychoanalyst talks a lot about this it's something about symbolization um, and it's about the importance of being able to have that you know pretend imaginative life but also not to be too kind of invested in it that you know that you can't so you know, was, you know when my kids would play and they'd be playing you know war or something you know and be saying, well that's not very nice oh dad it's just pretend <laughs> you know I, I, you know in the sense that they were able to flip in and out of what was pretend and what was not and that was really important though of course with Santa and the you know the, the creepy elf on the shelf um, <laughs> we're kind of imposing that on them um, in terms of the fact that we're, your parents are actually leading their children into but, but, but perhaps it's a way of teaching that lesson that we need we all have fantasy we all have sto- we're, we're story making people so that's part of our lives but we also all need to have a way of detaching from fantasy and story and mm-hmm. live in the real world and that's a negotiation mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. taking place with our thoughts and experiences and meanings all the time so it, yeah. it's, a, it's a 
way of doing that. And I actually think that's important, especially given the context where uh, Rachel was talking about. I mean, certainly Hannah Siegel and you know other people from different aspects have talked about you know the the importance of context, you know, which may not allow people to ultimately distinguish between you know reality and fantasy, or to be incredibly invested in you know fantastical kind of you know responses because you know pain and neglect uh, you know in, in life mm. really. And, and actually, and, those things can be lifesavers for people. Yeah, so that sounds okay to me. And to go back to Paula's question, I would recommend getting an elf on the shelf. I have massively downplayed that it's going to report back on you because I don't necessarily want my children to be scared in their own home and paranoid about who's spying on them. But also, <laughs> I would, you know, hope to be trying to encourage them to behave, not just because some, you know, they might or may not get presents, but just because it's better to try and, you know, be a kind child and, and so on. So I haven't gone down there the elf is reporting back, but it's just a nice little addition to the family tradition of Christmas. So what does this elf on the shelf look like? How big is he? Is he a tiny elf or a big elf? Or a... Well, he's a very expensive elf if you, buy, <laughs> if you buy the properly branded elf on the shelf. Um, he's about the size of a... You, get um, brand, you then get buy a knockoff elf on the shelf, then they'll clearly be as powerful. You can get but <laughs> yeah, and I might do that. Um, my son has an elf on the shelf in his classroom, which he says is a fake one because it's not the real one, so, you know... If you buy the cheap one, they might not. Obviously, oh, yeah. the power of the yeah. you know, the Poundland, sorry, yeah. Poundland, an admirable story in many ways, but they're clearly not such perceived as such a powerful elf on the shelf. I mean, I do wonder that the whole kind of you know good and bad, get presents and not, is, is such a weak basis on which to set up. Yeah, because every kid is going to know about some kid down there who's like incredibly naughty and has just been given a BMX. Or something, <laughs> you know, it's um. So it doesn't, it doesn't really work, you know, I think. In I, I do wonder, who invented the Elf on the Shelf then? I don't know, some very successful... Sounds like Elf on the Shelf Corp in... I must admit, it does sound a bit like that, going back to our previous question. But yes, a bit of fun. It's good, isn't it, really? So we're, we're pro-Santa, we possibly have a few more reservations about the Elf on the Shelf, given the slightly punitive um, punitive frame with which it, uh, the Elf on the Shelf is offered to us. But, you know, pro-Santa broadly, I think. Uh, so shall we end there? Um, Happy Christmas, everyone. Yes, Happy Christmas, Christmas, everyone. So the best way to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, is to uh, look on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your uh, podcast from uh, by searching for Discussions in Tunbridge Wells and clicking subscribe or equivalent. Uh, we also post all our podcasts on our blog. As well as that, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCCUA. Triple uh, PSY, so it's CCCU AppSci. We have some further podcasts, as I was mentioning, uh, planned and recorded uh, for next year, so watch this space. All that remains for me to do is thank Anne, Rachel, and Laura. They, they were all nodding, which is <laughs> incredibly reticent. Um, Doesn't come over well on radio. Yeah, incredibly reticent response for a, you know an audio medium, really. We weren't sure what to say. Thank you. Thank you. I can assure you, they were. I can assure you, they were all nodding. Uh, and thank you also to you for listening. We'll be back again.